0: Martin Luther said that um, when it comes to the subject of church, he said, a seven-year-old girl can describe what church is, but it would take me thousands of words to pen what her understanding is. And what I think he was trying to get at by saying that is there is a sense in which when we speak about church, we, we kind of intuitively have an understanding of what it is, but when you kind of dig down into it, when you try and define it, it gets complicated. So um, we will do the best we can in four talks this weekend. I think speakers always say this, but there's always more that we could cover. The structure of these four talks is going to be, the two talks today are going to be kind of big picture ideas of what church is. They're going to be sort of more kind of doctrinal talks about the church. And then tomorrow we're going to, we'll have two kind of more expository talks Focusing on exactly what our responsibilities as members of Christchurch Mayfair are. Okay, so big picture kind of stuff today, more specifics tomorrow. So if you see, um, first, first talk we're in that that first uh, mini title is the church a means to an end, or is the church the end of the means? Okay, I had a I had a friend of mine. Uh, he did an internship at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington. That's with a guy called Mark Dever. He's the guy who's written, um, like nine marks of the church, that kind of thing. Uh, and my friend had a telephone interview with him before he we went off and did his internship. My friend wasn't lacking in confidence because he did this telephone interview walking up the road with me beside him. So I got, I got to listen into his conversation and he said, he said, to Mark Dever, you know, Mark, Mark, you see, the problem the problem with lots of Christians in England is that they think that the church is a means to an end. They don't get that the church is actually the end of the means. I wonder if you sort of get what he was, he was, my friend was sort of trying to articulate by saying that. There's a way of looking at church that thinks um, our job is to do stuff. So the church is a means to another end. Uh, whether that's evangelism, social justice, world transformation, or or, or discipleship. So you can think of the church as a means to an end. Or you can think of the church as the end of the means, what God himself has been working towards. Now, I think at the end of the day, you you kind of get into difficulties if you want to make too clear-cut a distinction between, between those things. But, it is very much worth dwelling on that second idea. The church is the end of the means. Not just anyone's means, but God's means. The church is what God has been working towards. He has been working to gather a people to himself. And I want us to, I want us to linger on that idea this morning. The church is the end of God's means. The church is very, very precious to God, and that brings us on to our sort of first big point: the, the church, amazingly, is God's inheritance. So look at how um, look at how Peter puts it. That's that first quote in your handout there. Have a look down. That first quote in your handout it says, "But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation." A people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His wonderful light. It says you are a chosen people, or another translation has, you are a people for God's own possession. I mean, look, you see what sort of high estimation God holds the church in. We are a people for His own, for His own possession. God, God values, God esteems the church very, very much. But look, it even gets even better than that. The next quote, Ephesians one eighteen. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, in order that you may know the hope to which God has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now this is a prayer for anyone who's familiar with Ephesians. This is this is Paul praying for what he wants the Ephesian Christians, and uh, presumably all Christians, to understand. And what he says here is that he wants Christians to understand that the church is God's glorious inheritance. I don't. I don't want to be too morbid. Perhaps, perhaps some of you guys, you know, you know, there's a there's a precious um, family heirloom or something, and that that will be your inheritance. But well, amazingly, what the Bible is saying is that. That God is looking forward to inheriting us, His church. I mean, and what wonder, what kind of, what dignity, what focus that puts on us, the church. That is what God is looking forward to inheriting. And you say, what? Really? Us? us kind of rad-tad bunch of half-hearted Christians, us bunch of sinners that we, we know ourselves and each other to be. Really? We are God's inheritance? You think, gosh, God, you're going to be very disappointed. <laughs> uh, and you, you think back to all the way through church history, how, how the church had, sadly, has sadly has often grown through, through pride and ruthless ambition, and often in bloodshed, do you think, really? The church is God's inheritance? The Bible says yes. Amazingly, it is. Because of course, you know, 1 John 3, 2 says, what we will be has not yet been made known. We are God's inheritance. He is gathering a people. And one day, when Christ returns, we will be transformed into to being like Christ. And that there, glistening, gleaming, us, the church, Will be God's inheritance. It's a wonderful thing. Church is very, very precious to God. And so you ask the question: Well, what was what was God doing before the dawn of time? What what was God doing seven thousand years ago? What was God doing yesterday? What is God doing today? What will God be doing tomorrow? And every day until Christ returns. the answer is: God is gathering his people, God is gathering his precious inheritance, a people for his own possession. So to begin this weekend, we need to understand just how precious the church is to God. That's what he has been working towards, gathering a people to himself. And you realise actually when you start to think about it, yeah, that that is what the scriptures teach that God has been doing the whole way through. So you go right back to the beginning, you think of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, what what was the command that that God gave to them? He said, be fruitful and multiply multiply and fill the earth. And that's what it should have been. The earth should have been full of a people for God's own possession. The glory of God should have covered the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's what it should have been. It didn't go so well, did it, really? Adam and Eve, right right from the off, they sin, they turn their back on God, they say, no, we don't want to be your people. We want to go our own way. Uh, And then the the story of humanity degenerates, and you get to Noah and the flood, and before and after the flood, the scriptures tell us that every intention of the thought of man's heart was evil all the time. And it looks pretty bad. It looks like there isn't going to be a people for God's own possession. And then suddenly out of nowhere, God makes that wonderful promise to Abraham, the, the beginning of the gospel, and that's on your sheet from Genesis 12. God says to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I'll bless you and I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God makes that promise again. I, I will make you into a great nation. I will have a people for my own possession. And then over the next sort of 100, 200 years of the book of Genesis, through the book of Genesis, despite the ups and downs, despite the sibling rivalry, um, all of that kind of thing god is gathering and making a people and the pe- and god's people grow and grow and then and then they go into egypt and it looks pretty good the people god's people in egypt kind of flourish 430 years they flourish and they grow and it looks like god is gathering a people to himself but then uh, a genocidal pharaoh Comes to the throne, he says, no, I'm gonna try and eradicate God's people. I'm gonna try and kill all the firstborns of God's people. And it looks like things are going badly for, for God's plan to gather a people. But a few heroic midwives, a burning bush, and ten plagues later, and God has got, He's got thousands, hundreds of thousands, some to say even millions, of God's people walking through the Red Sea on dry ground. And then three months after that wonderful rescue, look at what God said. He he gathers his people around him on Mount Sinai. in In your books, Exodus 19, have a look down. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. So God says, I am going to have my people. And they go into the promised land, and you think under Joshua, okay, this is it, but it's not smooth sailing, is it? And God, and they say, look, give us a king, then we'll be, there will be better people for you, God. But the kings are not great, and then for sort of 400 years, as, as some kings are good, some kings are bad. The sort of history of God's people goes up and down, but really, it's in kind of a negative trajectory. And God says, guys, look, you've got to start acting like my people or I am going to scatter you. I'm going to disperse you to the four corners of of, of the earth and my people will be no more. And they go, no, you won't, God. He goes, yes, I will. No, no, you won't, God. Yes, I will. I will do it. And eventually he says, look, uh, I'm going to scatter you. And so the Assyrians come along and the Babylonians come along and they take God's people off into exile. And you think, okay, God isn't going to have the people for his own possession. It looks like the project has stopped. Until you hear the prophets, prophets saying strange and wonderful things, like God saying, I'm going to reach out my hand a second time and I'm going to draw people from the four corners of the earth, whether they're from the furthest one places, I am going to draw them to myself. And then from Isaiah 54, God says things like, For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. The prophets say strange and wonderful things like uh, the quote you've got there from Ezekiel 37. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers. And I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. The prophets say, no, God, God is not going to be forty. God is going to gather a people to himself. And the different thing they say is that this time God's people are going to be gathered around a king, a king who is both human and divine. And two thousand years ago, we saw a man walking among us we saw a man among us doing things who looked like what God would do God came and walked among us 2,000 years ago we saw a man walking among us and he said things like this John 10 he said I lay down my life for the sheep I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen I must bring them also they too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. See God's King promising that he is going to gather a people round himself. And then we see that King dying on a cross, dying for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. To make a people not just made up of one ethnicity, or one nation but to gather a people to God from every tribe and tongue and nation and language and we've seen that happening in history, God's people being gathered to himself, we've seen that in the book of Acts as the, as the sort of ethnic and national boundaries slowly, slowly get broken down and we've seen that in history as the gospel started in the Middle East and then spread like a ripple out, out, out through geography through time and we see even, even in the room today here, many nationalities gathered. And then you flick on to the wonderful picture of this in its fulfilment in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 7. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. God will gather his people. And then the final, the the penultimate chapter of the whole of Scripture, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice on the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. Here we go, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And that is the climax, that is the climax of God's plan to gather a people to himself, consistently, patiently, with long-suffering, we love God's plan throughout the whole of time has been to gather a people to himself, his glorious inheritance, a people for his own possession. That is what God is working towards. That is God's master plan. Wonderful thing. And let's just be really clear what we mean when we say God gathering a people to himself. Because uh, you've got, it's got me thinking as I was preparing this. Um, I mean this is broad brushstroke stuff but it seems to me probably in the past if, if you talk to people about the idea of of being a nation or or being a people most, you know, past 500 years ago, a lot of people would would, if you talk about like a, a city or a place a lot of people would have been united by the same sort of ethnicity or something like that they'd have had the sense, that when you talk about a people we're sort of a people group is kind of organically connected to each other through the same ethnicity, same bloodline, etc., that kind of thing. But if you think about it, it's, it's kind of, particularly in London, it's a, it's a bit different. I think in terms of our mindsets about this, we can think a bit differently. So if you said like the people of London, right? I mean, what 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 do we think when we mean that? I don't think we have any sense necessarily that we're kind of un, un, united together organically. I mean, many of us move around loads. Um, you know, even in this room, many of us marry, marry people from, from different nationalities, things like that. When you talk about the people of London, what, what what you mean is that we we live in the same geographical location, and if you like, we you know we enjoy the same blessings of being in London. But I don't. We don't think in terms of being somehow sort of organically united to each other. I think that's how probably our mindset now. But when the Bible talks about God gathering a people, he's not just talking about gathering a collection of individuals who kind of enjoy the same blessings uh, of being, of being uh, Christians. He is talking about a people who are united to God in love and organically united to each other. So it's people, when we talk about God gathering a people, it's people in its kind of richest and fullest sense. We're going to go on in a minute just to look at some of the images God uses of that. But let's be really clear what we say when we say God is gathering a people to himself. God is gathering, that has been his master plan, he's gathering people to himself. People who are organically united to him and to each other. Now we need to go on to look at some of the, the the images of the church. We've seen what a big deal church is to God. And we need to go on, if we're to really sort of understand that, feel that, we need to think about some of the many images that the Bible uses to to try and convey some sense of wonder and importance about what the church is. Uh, I read a, read of a guy who wrote a book about all the images of the church. He reckons he counted 96 images that the Bible uses to describe the church. Uh, I haven't been through and checked that. I don't, I have no idea whether that's right. But um, he's probably, he's probably a little bit over the top. But, it, but suffice to say, there are many, many images that the Bible uses to describe the church. Uh, and we need to have, we need to have a sort of a fully orbed, three-dimensional view of all those images so that we can understand the full picture. The danger is if you just focus on one type of image, um, then then you'll only get uh, that that sort of narrow view. So you need to think about all all the many images. We're only going to have a chance to to look at three, but I've tried to pick ones that I think uh, cover and are quite expansive. So the first image we need to look at is that of being Christ's body. Got that quote from Ephesians one, I think, in your booklets. Yeah? This is from the, the opening symphony of the book of Ephesians. And as I read through, look look how all the blessings that come to us as Christians are contingent upon us being in Christ. Okay, just as we read through. It says Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us In the heavenly realms, with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us, in him, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons, through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfilment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. So do you see that, blessings in Christ, chosen... In him, predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus. In him we have redemption. The Bible says that that, you can never think of the blessings that that come to us as Christians, apart from being in Christ. I don't know if this is new teaching to anyone, but it's the idea that, that, that actually, really, spiritually, every Christian, by the Holy Spirit, is united to Christ. We are already united to Christ. We are in Christ. And that is why one of the dominant images the Bible uses to describe the church is the body of Christ. Have a look at that next quote from 1 Corinthians 12. It says, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honoured, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ and each of you is a part of it. We are united spiritually with Christ that that is a reality and that is why we it makes sense to say the church is Christ's body. Let me read some other quotes from you uh, for, to you. First Corinthians 12 12 to 14. First Corinthians 12 12 to 14 says the body is a unit Though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptised by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Similarly, another reference, if you want to note it down, Ephesians 1, 22-23. God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. What, what an amazing thing, because by the Holy Spirit we're united to Christ, we are united organically to each other as Christ's body. And that's just, we couldn't, couldn't be closer to each other. Amazing, amazing thing which obviously has implications for, you know, as that quote on your sheet indicates how we look out for each other, how we grieve with each other, how we rejoice with each other, how we care for each other. Church is Christ's body. What I want you to do, some of you will like this, some of you will think this is very cringy, turn to the person next to you, look them in the eye, and say to them, you and I are united together in Christ's body. That's the first image, the the church is Christ's body. The second image we're going to look at is that next one on your your, your sheet, the church is God's household. Here's this quote from, from 1 Timothy. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Well, see, so it talks about household and, and with that we're meant to think family. And obviously in, in the Bible we often, we often hear Christians referring to each other as brothers and sisters. And Paul tells Timothy, you know, treat older women as, as mothers, older, older men as fathers. So, so we're, we're family because we are God's household. Look around, bro- brothers and sisters. But when it says household, we are we're not meant to think less than family, but I think we're meant to, meant to think uh, a bit more than kind of, you know, the, the normal nuclear family, 2.4 kids kind of idea uh, that we might sometimes think of. When it, when it says household, I think we're meant to think kind of household as in Downton Abbey household, <laughs> all right? Not, not because some of us are servants, and some of us <laughs> not, nothing like that at all, nothing like that at all, but... But household I think in terms of household I think in terms of the idea of kind of um stability. You know, like Downton it's the whole wall. is the Grantham household gonna gonna kinda carry on, is there gonna be an heir, that kind of thing. And obviously and I think that way it works in the in the household of God is that is as that quote indicates, we are to be a a pillar and buttress of truth. We're to be concerned, if you like, about the the continuation of the, of the family line, of the people of God, by guarding, looking after, being a pillar and buttress of the truth. So household means the idea of family, yes. Household means the idea of, of stability and continuation. Household, I think, means the idea of purpose. When think about Downton Abbey. It all revolves around the purpose of the household, being there, do, being there doing good, for each other and for the wider community. So We are the household of God. Brothers and sisters, concerned for stability and the continuation, if you like, of the family life. It's all about the, the purpose of being God's people. So for the second time, look, look to a different person, look to a different person, person on your other side and say, you and I are family members in the household of God. Finally, you are going to look at We Are a Temple for the Holy Spirit. That, that next quote from Ephesians 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So it says, "We the church are a holy temple for the Lord." Obviously, the temple in the Old Testament was was where was where God dwelt. In a sense, it was a sort of intersection between heaven and earth. And God is saying, now the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit, not in the sense that you know on a Sunday if we play the right. Chords under the confession and we play the right play the right music or anything like that that the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit is somehow going to come in there and, and the building is going to be the, the temple no it's, it's, it's we the people are the temple the Holy Spirit he, he, he lives he lives in each of us and, and sort of collectively together we the people are the temple God of God the Holy Spirit and what a wonderful thing I mean that obviously has a holy temple uh, has implications for our holiness, how much we give ourselves to, to living out the fact that we are set apart to be a holy people. The church is a, is a temple for the Holy Spirit. You and I are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's the last thing I want to turn someone else and say that to them. Look them in the eye and say, you, are, you and I are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. There's wonderful, wonderful images about the church. Christ's body, God's household, a temple for the Holy Spirit, and that is why it makes sense to say we are God's, <coughs> God's glorious inheritance. That we are what God has been working towards together himself. Absolutely amazing. And look, I've already mentioned some of the implications of that for Christ's body, so of course we're concerned for each other's welfare of God's household, so of course we're concerned for the continuation of the family line, for the purpose, for stability, for a temple of the Holy Spirit, of course we're concerned for our own holiness. But what I want to finish with is this one sort of big implication or application, and that is to try and help us see that, of this big picture category of church, it kind of doesn't ever make sense for us to think of our identity as Christian in an individualistic sense, okay? Whenever we think of our identity as Christians, we have to think of ourselves as part of this big cosmic category of church. We have to think of ourselves as part of this people whom God has been gathering to himself from before the beginning of time, working towards that final revelation of all people. In the, in the new heavens and the new earth, okay? So that's the application I've put there, our our identity and the church. Obviously we do have individual identities of Christians. I'm not, I'm not trying to downplay that at all. It's not just that God kind of looks at, looks at the church and sees this kind of amorphous lump of humanity and goes, oh, there's my church, how brilliant. I mean, he sees, he sees, he knows the, he knows the number of hairs on our heads. Of course he knows us individually. The Apostle Paul could say, um, the Son of God who loved me and gave up his life for me. Of course, our individuality matters to God. Of course, of course, of course. But I think for most of us, you know, uh, 21st century Westerners, our, our default is to think individually. And I want to encourage us to never be able to think of our identity is just an individual thing. Whenever we think of ourselves, I want us to think of ourselves in this cute category of church. Uh, I was reading, uh, I can't remember what book it was, but a guy said something um, I found very interesting. Again, it's, it's, you know, broad brushstrokes. But he said this, you know, he said, when it comes to identity, uh, modern Western societies tend to have this as their default mindset. And that is that that individuals create groups. That individuals come together and create groups. But even actually, in kind of more traditional societies, and, and certainly in the past, it, it was more the other way around. So if you, if you lived in a society sort of um, where the idea of nationhood is really important, or the idea of family is really important, the type of society where When you meet someone for the first time, the first question you ask them is, oh, so what job do you do? The first question you ask them is, oh, who's who's your father? As if, you know, which what family lines you come from. He said that in those kind of societies, they they think not so much as individuals create groups, but but that the group defines the individual. Uh, and I want to suggest, you know, again, you can't you can't really set those at odds against each other. I think the Bible talks of both, but I want to suggest that we're much more likely to think about think of identity about individuals creating groups rather than the group defining the individual. And I want us to think about that in terms of church. Can people, see, everyone, see this clipboard? Can you guys see? and it, this is a this is a stupid diagram. That I'm going to go in a so there'll be lot You can pick it apart, but I think broadly. Oh, make the point. So, you know, individual in London. And, and I think our mindset is that we kind of define our own identity by, by kind of things we, we choose to do, okay? or Or friendships. Friendship group, I don't know, A. Friendship group. Mates, that might be uni mates, and we kind of define our identity by kind of um, the groups that we choose to belong to. Maybe that's, you know, the football team you support, you know, our hobby up here, something like that. We choose what defines us, our identity, to some extent. I guess simplification. Those are things that often feel very strong in terms of our identity. I think as 21st century Westerners, and of course, of course, there are, there are other things, bigger things that we we don't get to choose. Things that define us, you know. We might we feel them in varying degrees. So you know, your your family, you know, you don't really get to define that. That that defines you, or. Your, your nationality. That defines us. I think if we take the Bible's teaching on the church seriously, we have to always think that the church is, is, is a, this type of category. If we're a Christian. We, we, you don't have a choice, if you like. About being part of God's people, you are. That is what God has done. That is what God is doing. That just exists. The church almost defines you in a sense. And so, I want us to—I want us to not be able to think in terms of our own individual identity without thinking about this big picture identity of church being God's people. And I don't—I don't think we should to be able to think about our Christian identity without also thinking of ourselves as part of this wonderful gathering of God's people, that God is to open us. And now look, we'll get into some of what that that might mean in practice in the next talk, but this is just one of those applications that, in the first instance, I just want it to affect our thinking. But wherever you think of yourself, you locate yourself within that bigger idea of being part of God's people. Christ's body, which is God's household, which is a temple of the Holy Spirit, which is God's own precious possession, which is God's inheritance, a thing that he has been working towards to gather to himself. So I want to say in this session, we'll we'll carry on. Um, Next session, let let me pray, and then Phil will tell us what's next. Our Heavenly Father, forgive us that very often we do think about ourselves without reference to being part of your people. We thank you for the, for, the, for, the, for the dignity that you give the church. We thank you for the high esteem that you hold the church. We thank you for the um, high regard you have for the church, which seems ridiculous when we know ourselves and we know uh, what a ragtag bunch we are. But we thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have and are and will be working towards gathering the people for yourself. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you will help us always to, to locate our identity within that, that massive category of your people. Amen. Amen. Good. So, where are you, What's Here's timing. Yes. So what's next? Yes. Um, so now we're going to go into our individual small groups. So I'll just quickly tell you where they're going to meet. If you're in PCS, if you're in my memory group or Lucy's group, we're going to meet here in the other conference room over there. Um, the rest of you guys are going to meet up here. So if you're in Adam, Sam, and Camilla's group, you're going to congregate in the middle of the room. Um, if you're in Aldish and Wingrove's uh, group, you're going to be in this corner. If you're in the Masons and the Scottish group, you're going to be in that corner. Uh, if you're in the Land and Roots group, you're going to be in that corner over there. And if you're in Larry Wenner and Sarah's group,